Hi, this is Jeremy Gritton, art director and story lead for Ori and the Will of the Wisps, and you're listening to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 148 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on Sunday, October 2nd, 2022. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost. In this episode, we welcome developers from Reply Games on to discuss their recent AA release of Solstice. It's an homage to classic action games like DMC and Ninja Gaiden, and it's an absolute blast. Prior to that, we're going to take a look at the implications on xCloud, given that Google's Stadia has been shut down. What game companies are doing to players impacted is interesting and uplifting. More on that in the episode. Enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XEP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. And as I am wont to do each and every week, I like to start the show by offering words of kindness to those who have made my gaming week better. And this week, the words of kindness go to names that you've all heard before. Ainsley Bowden, Joseph Moran, Kevin Butler, Mr. Charles Jones, uh, and of course, Lord James Suddy. These guys are my gaming crew. In one way or another, I'm interacting with them regularly throughout the gaming week. Uh, whether it's about real life stuff, silly stuff, serious stuff, dumb gifts, dumb memes, and, and taking pot shots at each other or whatnot. But this past week was really rough in my real world life, like in, in the non-gaming sense. And I barely talked to any of them. I barely had a chance to play any video games at all. Uh, and still they were there. They were joking. They were being silly. Uh, nobody gave me a hard time for not being able to show up to gaming sessions or anything like that. Uh, and I really enjoyed that and, and that, that comfort, I guess you could say. And that's what friends are, are for. And with the exception of Kevin Butler, uh, I met all these people through gaming. And it was just a really nice, uplifting thing to know that people would listen to me, have my back, forgive me. Like I, I couldn't make cast co-op. We just we couldn't do it. I had too much on my plate. And there, there were there was never any negativity sent my way. It was support. It was constant like, Luke, you got this. Keep your head up. Keep trying whatever you need. Um, and that's really, really nice. That's really, really nice. And it's a, uh, it, it was just a comforting thing. And so I wanted to give them a, a due shout out for sure. Um, it's also meant that my gaming time has has changed from multiplayer to largely single player. I wrapped up the main story in Cyberpunk around sixty hours at this point. Now I can go back in and do side jobs and uh, other little things. Really love that game. It's not gaming Jesus like some people thought it would be, uh, but it's a really great game and I love it. And I got some flack from my gaming buddy Ainsley Bowden because without trolling or being silly, this game to me is very much a combination of uh, Rage 2 in terms of shooting and driving, which is a compliment to the shooting and a, eh, to the driving. Uh, it is very much like Watch Dogs, uh, any of the variations of Watch Dogs, in that you can solve puzzles by different methods of hacking and opening and closing things, moving things around uh, digitally by hacking, uh, which is really cool. And then I suppose the writing in many ways and the performances are on the level of Witcher 3 if it were updated. And to me, those are compliments. But Ain seemed to get offended when I was like, it's like Rage 2 and Watch Dogs. But I really liked those games. I loved me some Rage 2. And I really liked Watch Dogs as well. And, um, you know, for better or worse, if you're listening to this show, you know that uh, I have a big affinity for the double A 
for the AAA that may not be the top tier, I, I think it's important to find enjoyment in those games because they were made by people and there's a lot of fun to be had. And I don't like the snooty, I only play nines approach of, of some gamers. And um, I've really enjoyed my time with Cyberpunk. But yeah, I love the comparison um, that I stumbled into of Rage 2 and Watch Dogs. I think it's a great comparison, in, in fact, uh, and a compliment because I like those games, but uh, I did get a hard time from a few people there. Uh, if you haven't tried Cyberpunk, I I really encourage it. I, I I really had a blast with it. I like it a lot. It really plays well on Series X. Um, I would not recommend it on old systems, regardless of updates. I would play it on Series X, S, or PlayStation 5. Uh, and then, of course, if your PC is good, you should rock it there. I even got myself a Johnny Silverhand statue. Uh, statue might be a strong word for it, but it looks like a statue to me on my shelf, and I'm really excited to have that uh, just to complement my experiences with Cyberpunk. That is actually... What I enjoy most about like special editions are statues. I don't really like vinyls or stickers or any of the little stuff. It's just a statue. I want something physical that that stands out on a shelf that commemorates my memories with the game. And um, yeah, I love it for, again, those double A AA to triple A experiences on my shelf. Proudly is the Darksiders Genesis uh, statue next to Darksiders 3 and then qu quite next to it are the Arkham and God of War statues, the Halo statues, the Doom statues and to me it's just a wonderful commemoration for the time I spent with the game and it brings back memories of goodness uh, and so I really dig statues and figures in, in that sense um, and I'm equally excited for the statues I have coming this year. I mean man, Gotham Knights is this month. I'm so excited for that. I'm hoping to get another voice on the show about Gotham Knights. Mind you, we had Gritzia Bajos, who uh, voices a character in the game. She's been on the show. We had Osama Dorius, who at the time was uh, one of the game designers for Gotham Knights. He's since moved on. Uh, but I'm really hoping we can get you know Mitch Dyer or a few other voices from Gotham Knights on the show. That'd be really great. Um, but I'm so excited for that and, and what's coming with Gotham Knights. That latest trailer, just mm, fire. Um, and some people are... are I, sometimes games get dunked on because people just want some, a game to dunk on. Gotham Knights is really looking good. And, and I think it's very silly when I see people default to, we're going to make fun of it because it's Gotham Knights or or whatever other game. And it's like, yo, you pay attention. You got some good games there, good games to that can be easily missed. So I'm excited for that one. I'm also excited for uh, God of War Ragnarok. I got my statue ordered for that one. I'm so stoked for that. Um, and I say statue, again, I want to be clear, like the special edition ones, not the... Not the like $500 things. I don't ball like that. Uh, I can't really handle that amount. But I'm, I'm stoked, man. October's a packed month. You know, Gotham Knights, you got Call of Duty. Uh, goodness gracious. Let me scroll. I have like a list of just how many October releases. You got the new Plague Tale game. Uh, no More Heroes 3, I think, is still, or that might have gotten delayed. Uh, Resident Evil Expansion is in here. Scorn. A lot of gamers uh, in the Xbox community excited for what Scorn brings. There's just a lot to be had here in this October. And I'm stoked for it. I wrap up some of my extracurriculars at school. I'm coaching right now. At the end of October, that'll be done. And so November awaits with some extra gaming time. And I'm looking forward to it for sure. For sure. Well, all that said, there is a, a packed show for you guys. I'm really hoping you enjoy the Solstice interview. Again, that's a double A experience that's very much in the homage of kind of the classic Devil May Cry style games. Fixed camera, which has had some hit and misses. And we talk about that in the interview uh, with Reply Games, uh, two fantastic gentlemen, Marco and Sam, who came on and and really owned things that they thought players might be frustrated with, what they were excited about. Uh, I loved talking to these people. They they just 
they knew their game backwards and forwards and they were excited to talk about it to celebrate it and so was i and i'm really enjoying my time with solstice it is that perfect double a experience one of the questions i asked them was how do you how do you deal with being a double a experiences with with the resources that come with that and being compared to triple a experiences and they really just gave a great answer for it and i hope you guys uh, we'll check it out and give the game a look. A lot of people are asking me about spooky games. I know Todd Oxtra later on in the show asked about that. Um, there's a horror vibe to it. It's not a horror game, mind you, but there's this like dark fantasy, gothic horror-esque vibe to it that if you want a low stakes hack and slash game in that vibe, that might be something to look at for sure. Well, let's take a break and then hit the news. The biggest story this week is not Xbox specific, but rather Xbox adjacent. Google Stadia is shutting down come January 18th. Pretty big deal. Google announced that Stadia would no longer be a viable service come January 18th, 2023. Uh, I know a lot of people were frustrated by this on a number of different levels. Uh, There is a small community that's affected, but a passionate one at that. Um, This is Xbox adjacent given the prospect of cloud gaming, but I want to note just a couple things. Uh, It sounds like Google announced this, but they announced it without telling many developers about the shutdown prior to posting the public uh, announcement that Stadia would be leaving. Um, This is a big deal given that you have big games like Destiny 2 and Assassin's Creed out there uh, with a, a solid player base in the Stadia community, Avengers as well. Um, and it looks like many of those companies are doing what they can to migrate profiles, uh, to other experiences so that Stadia users, if they're, if you're big into Stadia, uh, and you're playing destiny or Assassin's Creed, uh, it looks like they're going to be working to migrate your profile. So you don't lose progress. You'll just have to jump in on a different platform. Uh, and that's, that's a small win, I guess, in that category. And I'm sure, uh, we'll see a lot of people migrate to, to the Xbox community as well. Uh, for those games and i hope that it transitions well for you stadia players because for goodness sakes the promise of stadia was absolutely there and it's one that we've seen xcloud uh, really do a good job of kind of easing players into i think it's been a long time coming Uh, i think we've all kind of seen this on the horizon that that stadia just wasn't healthy Um, it's equally sad that that you had google being so blatantly blatantly disrespectful and mismanaging the talents of of the people that were working on Stadia projects because a lot of great people were working on Stadia projects. But we have seen other companies swoop in and save many of those uh, projects, many of the people involved in those projects. Consider that High on Life was once a Stadia Stadia exclusive project. So that's kind of a big deal uh, for sure. I hope a lot of these people land on their feet. Uh, With the exception of Phil Harrison, I'm very confused why Phil Harrison keeps getting jobs in the gaming industry. He's only failed upwards and he continues to kill big projects. So there has to be something that that Phil Harrison is doing that we are not privy to on the outside looking in. I'm very curious to know what it is because he continues to get jobs. Uh, with Stadia shutting down, there's still plenty of xCloud competition for cloud-based uh, gaming. I mean, you have to think uh, PlayStation's kind of doing their own thing. NVIDIA is trying to work on their projects, as is Amazon with their own alternative elements. But I think what sets xCloud apart from these platforms, including PlayStation, though they've got kind of a touch of this, uh, is that they are building their their cloud gaming service as a complementary service or a, even a supplementary service to their their hardware and the gaming production. Xbox is well into the process of managing touch controls on multiple devices, whether it be tablet, whether it be phone, uh, multiple types of phones. 
they've got multiple cloud access points via their service. You can log in on any number of devices and jump in. Uh, or if those aren't right for you, you can still stick to the hardware approach. Um, you also have to think that something that Xbox has that NVIDIA and Amazon don't have in near or in perpetuity rather is the studios and the IP to generate content for this service. And I think that's the biggest thing. We know Amazon is trying to get studios and trying to create games. They had that big game, which name escapes me, that launched and then got pulled pretty quickly. Um, and several others, I think NVIDIA is trying to do this as well, but Xbox has, you know, they purchased Bethesda, they got Obsidian, they got Exile, and all of those games are coming to cloud platforms as well as hardware platforms. And I think that's their biggest advantage. They've got games in the pipeline, studios in the pipeline. They've got people working specifically on cloud-based computing. They're bringing in names like Kojima to do so, but it's not in lieu of standard projects. In fact, it's allowing standard projects to be opened up into the cloud-based element. Uh, and that's a really cool thing. I remember the announcement of if it's on Game Pass, it's on xCloud. And it's just a matter of we're playing the game, you're doing the inputs. And that's a really cool uh, concept. And goodness knows what that, that Activision Blizzard deal might mean for cloud computing, given that they're bringing in uh, King, which is a lot of mobile stuff, Candy Crush, that kind of thing, Call of Duty Mobile, a lot of data to be had about latency and how to manage that, uh, spe specifically for Twitch-based gaming, right? Like I love cloud-based computing for non, how do I put this, like, like games that are not super dependent on Twitch controls, Twitch reactions. And uh, I think if you bring in Activision Blizzard King, you've got experience with that on another level that would add to your stuff. But um, it's a real shame that Stadia is shutting down. But I think that there is a lot of promise in cloud-based gaming. And xCloud seems to be the forefront of this because they're not making it the forefront of their experience. It's a supplementary element or a complementary element. And credit to PlayStation for finally dipping their toes into the cloud-based thing. That's not meant to be a dig. That's I'm just glad they're they're doing that. I think Amazon and NVIDIA are good examples of uh, competition in that space. And then there's always the wandering giant, like what could Google technologies do? Like, could the Stadia technology be partnered with something else? And I thought there was so much potential in that Stadia technology. Also had a lot of fear that like, you're playing a game through Stadia, or rather I should say you're watching a video on a game being played and then you jump in via Stadia and then all of a sudden ads pop up. You know, Google is, is vicious with ads, for goodness sakes. It's it's wild to try and navigate YouTube without an ad blocker now because um, they're trying to push you towards spending money. And uh, I really want Google to have competition on a number of levels. I need YouTube to have competition on a number of, le of levels uh, because there is such a thing as, as mm, unchecked power. And I think we're seeing a lot of that with the Zuckerberg stuff and, and the political elements of Google in the last few years. But uh, not, bottom line, to bring it back to gaming, I think this is a real sad thing to see Stadia shutting down, knowing how many people tried for it. But it was also a long time coming. And if you didn't see the writing on the wall, I think maybe perhaps you weren't looking. Um, and I'm anxious to see how xCloud and other companies react to this news. And I'm hoping those projects get saved. High on Life is the example I chose uh, as a game that was once a Stadia exclusive. My hope is that we continue to see uh, more games brought. One of my favorite games, Darksiders Genesis, was on Stadia first and then made its way over to, co to proper consoles. And I'm anxious to see uh, what happens to many of those projects. Pretty cool news for an Xbox studio this past week. Grounded hit its 1.0 launch. It has now hit its full release. We had Adam, Adam Brennicke on 
uh, a few years ago when the game first went into early access. I believe that was in July of 2020. Uh, we had we had Adam on. It was an absolute pleasure to have him. I really encourage you guys to go back for perspective and and search out that interview. Uh, I should have put in the notes of what episode it was, but I, I neglected to do so. Really cool guy, really smart guy, and uh, working to have Adam back on the show at some point soon uh, just to talk about the progress and the excitement surrounding Grounded. I mean, the game hit 1 million users in its early, early like first week of early access, and now it's hit its 1.0 launch. It's available on Xbox Series S and X, as well as Xbox One, Windows 10 and 11, and Steam. Uh, of course, you can get it through Game Pass and Cloud Gaming, and that's really, really great. Um, I'm so happy for this team, and it sounds like a lot of people are absolutely loving it. It's getting very high review scores, uh, eights and nines, and in some cases, tens. Uh, sounds like Ground is a big hit. This was a game that I played for a bit in order to prepare for the interview some years ago, but it wasn't, I guess, for me specifically, and I'm not one for betas or alphas, really. Uh, that said, I could see the promise, and I'm excited to jump back in. It's probably going to be a November-December game for me, um, because I've got so much in October and I like to kind of confine my October experiences to uh, spooky adjacent style games. And, and uh, I'm that's kind of my, my fun element to it. Uh, but Grounded is on my list to play for sure. Uh, and, and bravo to them. They're 1.0 release, 13 biomes, three of which had huge overhauls, 44 creatures, including a giant koi fish and bird, as well as a host of features that flesh out the game. Uh, much was made of the Arach- arachnophobia mode, which... I always wondered, and this is where I need people to write in and tell me if I'm being silly or or whatnot. I always thought it was odd to put in an arachnophobia mode. Um, I know some people are scared of spiders, but so much so that you couldn't play a game. That surprises me, but I could just be ignorant to those who actually like how detrimental it could be. So if you know someone that that is able to experience grounded or can't play a game due to spiders uh, or, or fear of spiders or whatnot, because it's you're supposed to be tense and scared of them. Uh, I would love to know and give me some perspective. Uh, perhaps I'm being too harsh or not understanding enough, and I would I would welcome uh, some perspective from somebody that's actually impacted by it. Because to me, it would seem like an odd element or an odd thing to do to turn it into a jelly bean and reduce the fear of it. But uh, I want to know, so tell me if if that's you, because uh, I think it would help a lot. I think uh, also we should go ahead and jump straight into listener topics for this one because I don't want the episode to run too long because we do have a good 40-minute interview about Solstice, which let me mention something about Solstice before we get to listener mail. Double-A uh, game, a lot of people liking it, a lot of people not liking it, a pretty big kind of disparity in terms of reviews uh, because it's very old school, intentionally old school, built as an homage. Um, I've played about four or five hours into it, and I'm really liking it in terms of an action hack and slash game. It's the kind of game for me where you can turn your brain off and just play. Uh, I think Sean Capri and I used to call it video game ass video games, and that's what it feels like. It's a game you can just play. You don't need to be tuned into the story if you're not there for that, although the story that's written is pretty darn cool. Um, but it's it's this wonderful homage to the old hack and slash third person genre. I do think the fixed camera is going to cause some people like, you know, a little like, eh, I don't know if that's for me, um, but I found it to be enjoyable. I liked it because it gave me perspective and I tell them as much. And so I've seen a lot of range of reviewers saying that this is good and bad. I think, 
I think the, the one Garrick from ACG was really high on it. Meanwhile, like some of the IGN outlets were, were less high on it. And all of that makes sense to me. But I would encourage you to look up Solstice, uh, watch some videos on it, see if it's for you. And if it's a wait for sale game for you, wait for a sale. Um, but it's already a budget double A title and I liked it a lot. So props to props to that team, uh, especially for them coming on and talking about that. I, I really feel like I'm, I'm gushing on it cause I really enjoyed hearing them discuss their video game. And like, I plan on going back and playing more solstice, even though the interview is done. Um, sometimes I prepare for interviews and then, you know, I don't need to keep playing it to have the good interview, but no, this one I'm really enjoying and I'm going to stick with it. All right. Listener mail here. This first one comes from my man, Mr. Todd Oxtra. Always steady and always reliable. He says, are there any spooky games you're looking to play this month? What are your favorite scary games? Um, So I just discovered a really good spooky game. Well, it's not spooky. It's a Halloween-themed game called Savage Halloween. It's five bucks on the Xbox Store, and I think it's on Switch and PlayStation as well as, as PC. Really simple game. It's basically like Contra, but everything's Halloween themed. Uh, like you can run around with three different characters. One's a vampire. One is uh, like a pumpkin head. And the other one is like a big brute. Uh, and each each character changes the game. It's all like easy to play. Like you know what to expect with it, but it's still really fun. Like you can shoot, you shoot bats, you shoot ghosts. You're flying on a broom uh, with a witch. You're going around graveyards. There are zombies trying to get you, axe murderers and uh, Grim Reaper is about. It's just a fun Halloween spooky aesthetic. Again, it's called Savage Halloween, and it's five bucks. So if you want some easy achievements and just a game to turn your brain off and have a good go with some Halloween theme, Savage Halloween. I really, really like it for what it is. Um, and I tweeted out uh, just uh, like complimenting the developers, and they all seem to get very excited. And that's cool, man. That's what you want. That's what you want is people celebrating games. Um, Todd, I'm also going to be, I redownloaded Back for Blood just for some some more mindless shooting. I'm really in the need of, of games where I just turn my brain off because of all the stress in the real world. So now that I'm done with Cyberpunk, I'm just doing turning my brain off until Gotham Knights and just playing as opposed to like getting super invested. So Back for Blood is one that I redownloaded. And even if my gaming crew doesn't jump in with me, I'm going to be shooting down some zombies just for kicks. Um, love, loved Back for Blood, even though it didn't stick with the way that Left 4 Dead did. Uh, I'm in for that one. Uh, and then shout out to Pumpkin Jack. This is a great, great double A experience game. Again, in an homage to PS2 titles, uh, you play as Pumpkin Jack. You're going around. It's Halloween themed. He's this big old pumpkin head. Uh, I really love that game for sure. And so those are kind of my three spooky games for this month that I would recommend that are outside of your big triple A like go play Resident Evil, right? Which you absolutely should. Resident Evil Village and Seven are just incredible. As is Resident Evil Four, um, and then. Uh, I should also note that like some of the live service games are doing Halloween stuff. I'm really excited for what Sea of Thieves does every year for Halloween. I love the spooky element. Sea of Thieves to me is a perfect spooky game with all the skeletons and phantoms and ghosts and stuff. So I'll probably spend a lot of money on my my boat making it look all creepy and, and whatnot. So that's what I'm in for. Uh, good question, Todd. Uh, Brendan Myers writes in, he wants to know, with there being so many games on all platforms, when where are some outlets that share lesser known games for Xbox? Brendan, I, I've kind of pulled a collection of three uh, XEP adjacent podcasts that are pretty good that you should check out. Uh, first one is 1H1D. Um, that is like one hour, one uh, game, like an Xbox gaming podcast. So it's 1H1D uh, over on Twitter. Uh, they talk about an Xbox Game Pass title each week. Um, 
I listened to their show for the first time. I think I tweeted out about it maybe two weeks ago. Really enjoy them. They spotlight a lot of lesser known games. They do like a, a random game generator for, for Game Pass and then play that game for an hour. Uh, so they do games big and small. Project X Talk is another podcast that does a good job at spotlighting smaller games, as is Exhibition. Uh, each of them spotlights smaller titles with regularity in the Xbox community. Uh, you know, I, I've had connections with each of those podcasts on various levels and I, and I enjoy working with them. So I'm spotlighting them because they do a good job at kind of snagging those smaller titles and they're a bit lesser known podcasts themselves. I also think, I also think, uh, also, I also think perusing like pure Xbox or Xbox era are good options, Brendan, as well as the indie gamer. But do know that with enthusiast sites, you get a lot of bias. Um, and, and I think anybody that, like, like I know great, amazing people at Xbox era. Um, but I think if they were to say like, well, we don't have bias. Well, no, it's called Xbox era. It makes perfect sense. And like, I love those guys. They're, they're fantastic. Um, just know that when, like, if you're on Nintendo enthusiast, I mean, you're getting some Nintendo skew, right? So you would get the same thing for the Xbox element of it as well. Uh, let's see. Next question comes from Mr. Rune Talvik. Uh, Rune says, your thoughts on limited story content? Because of all your tweets about Sea of Thieves, I decided to jump back in and I'm absolutely loving it. However, with life being busy, uh, I don't know how I can keep up. So I'm missing out on stuff in the game. Uh, not sure how I feel about that. Would love to hear your thoughts on this. You're going to, uh, you think this is going to be a more and more common thing amongst developers to try to keep players in their games. Rune uh, I do think it's going to be more common amongst developers. I am frustrated with story limited content that doesn't cycle back or give you a way to access it later. Um, see if these is a good example of this. I missed the latest mystery because of me being in COVID mode and then switching out of COVID mode and going back into a really frustrating situation at work. So I missed out on the latest time limited content and see if these, and that was a bummer. Um, I plan to ask a, a developer that might have some experience with this specific thing in about an hour from this recording. I have one of them on. And that'll be on next week's episode. Really excited to get on the mic with this chap. Uh, should be a fun time uh, and helpful to kind of figure this out a bit. But I don't like st time limited content that is story based uh, where you can miss out on on like something for your character or whatnot. There's got to be a way to adjust it. But live service games are, are tough in that respect fun speculation what's up mav uh he says what game franchise do you want to see come back in a big way oh man i feel like i default to a few of these so pardon me if you've heard this before but rogue squadron is the one that i'm uh, immediately like super excited about like please bring back rogue squadron i absolutely loved those games i want to see them come back um uh, I don't know that you would call this a game franchise, but with the success of the Cowabunga Collection and Shredder's Revenge, uh, that 16-bit that era beat-em-up, I want to see those games make a return. There's a lot of superhero games and licensed games that I think deserve to be re-released so they're not lost to time. Same with Marvel vs. Capcom 2, bring that back. Um, yeah, those are the ones that I'm, I'm super into. As far as like what franchise... That's a tough one because like I'm boring in the sense that like I know what I like and I want more of it and I don't know how to have the creativity to excite it. So like I want more Arkham games, but Arkham's story is done and Gotham Knights is not meant to be a replacement nor a Suicide Squad despite being in the same universe. And I, I don't know, like I don't know if that's the right answer to your question. Like I want Doom 3's horror style Doom to make a return. 
We've got the good running gun shooters of Doom and Doom Eternal. I want the horror version of Doom to come back like in Doom 3. Uh, so those are, those are kind of like jump out, standout ones that I want to see make a return. Uh, and that I don't think that's truly answering your question. I'm ready for an, a sequel to, a, to another Darksiders game. I want that franchise to make a comeback. And Halo Wars 3 would be cool. And again, I don't know if that's the right franchise spirit of the thing. But yeah, those are my answers in this quick moment. I did not prepare for your question ahead of time on purpose. I wanted to see gut reactions. And so Rogue Squadron is, is at the top of my, my list. And then another Arkham-style game. I would, you know, more, more Halo Wars, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that'd be good. Last question comes from Mr. Court Lalonde, host of Xbox A, an Xbox podcast. And Court, you do too many podcasts, man. You're on too many. You're on too many. You're on like a, a PlayStation podcast and talking about Xbox on it all the time. It's crazy talk, man. It's crazy talk. Uh, JK, I love you. So he wants to know, is the news cycle behind Activision Blizzard's acquisition getting tiring for you? Uh, yes, Court, it is getting tiring. I don't really care to talk about stuff that we're not experts on. And I get really tired of a lot of shows going in and and pretending like they are experts and acting as though they they know what's happening with Activision Blizzard when they clearly do not. I, I don't mind when like Satya Nadella speaks or Jim Ryan speaks and we look at the comment here and there. But when people are like, well, I'm a legal expert and it's like, no, you're not. Uh, and you don't know what's going on with, with this deal one way or the other, whether it goes through or not. It's expected to go through in June of 2023. That much we uh, were told from from true legal experts. But like, I don't know. I'm tired of talking about it every week. I much prefer to talk about games uh, themselves versus acquisitions. I think acquisitions are great for SEO, uh, but I'm not a show that thrives on that. My show does not grow uh, because of SEO in any way. It grows because small people uh, out there are retweeting or DMing people and say, or putting it on Reddit. Um, by the way, whenever my show hits Reddit, that is like the biggest feeling of accomplishment for me so thank you to whoever's posting it on reddit from time to time uh so so my show doesn't live on that and so i don't like to talk about acquisitions and i also don't care like one of the problems with being an xbox content creator right now is that all of their games are down the line right like it's consistently for two years we've been saying well when this game comes out when this game comes out and they they haven't hit their release cadence and i think that's a fair criticism right like Halo Infinite and Forza Horizon are so good. They're so good. But after that, we've had almost nothing. I don't think Grounded feels like an Xbox release, even though it is. Um, I don't think As Dusk Falls, I don't know why that game got attention uh, on the level that it did. And then, like, shout out to, the, to that studio and team for making a good game. Um, but, but why did that get the attention in lieu of the Forza Horizon expansion? I don't understand it. And so... I, I want more games to talk about, not acquisitions, not, you know, indie exclusive stuff in lieu of AAA stuff. I'm ready for big games. And so, yeah, man, I'm tired of talking about Ac Ac Activision and acquisitions and, and whatnot as the main topic. If it comes up, yeah, that makes sense. But like, dude, if when when any little thing like this, this regulator said this about it, I don't care. I just want to play games and talk about the games portion. All right, that's going to be it for my portion of the show. Of course, find me on Twitter at InsipidGhost, and please rate the show. If you're watching on YouTube, please click like or subscribe. If you are uh, on iTunes or Spotify, please drop a review. Guys, that, 
That is the lifeblood to shows like mine. It would mean the world if you would be so kind as to do that. Uh, I'm going to send you now to my interview with Reply Games. We've got uh, Mike and Marco and Sam, pardon me, Marco and Sam uh, to talk about Solstice. Again, give this game a look. See if it's for you. I liked it. I liked it a lot. Um, but, you know, plenty of people out there weren't mixed. But I really enjoyed this interview. These guys were so cool and so willing to talk about their project. And they loved making games. And you could tell. And there is a quote from Sam uh, Persio at the end that it just it hit my heartstrings. And I tweeted it out even. But he talks about how no, you know, every game, every game is a game uh, or a labor of love. And it's just it's a beautiful quote and much better than I said it just now. And so I, I recommend hearing it from him for sure. Uh, Marco Mortiaro and Samuel Persio from Reply Games. Please give them a shout uh, and, and check out their game. That's it for me, guys. Take care. All righty, guys. I am fortunate now to be joined by two developers from Reply Games Studios, the, the studio behind Solstice. I'm joined by Marco Mortiaro, sorry, Marco, uh, the lead game designer behind the game, and Samuel Persio, one of the writers for the game as well. Gentlemen, how are you? Oh, great, great. Thank you. And uh, your Italian uh, is uh, really, really good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I know we talked prior to me hitting the record button that I was terrified I'd mess it up, and I always get nervous. Marco, would you pronounce your last name for the audience? Let them know uh, your name properly so that I don't butcher it too badly there. Uh, it's Marco Mortillaro. And I am correct. You were the lead game designer with Solstice. You are right? absolutely correct. Nailed it. And Sam, how about you? Would you pronounce your name properly for me so that everybody can know uh, who we're chatting with? It's uh, Samuele Perseo, but Sam also works fine, so no Excellent. worries. So cool. Well, guys, I'm so excited to have you on XEP this week. Uh, I've been playing Solstice. You guys just put that game out. Uh, super fun action game, really cool art style, uh, and I'm loving the vibe that comes with it, and I want to talk quite a bit about Solstice. But first, I think it'd be great if we shared with listeners a little bit about Reply Game Studio. Uh, you know, where the studio is located, how many developers are there, and how long it's been together. Uh, tell me a bit about Reply. Uh, yeah, we're part of a big telco group that's called Reply. Uh, it's a group that deals with the uh, digital transformation with big companies. Uh, so nothing that's strictly related to gaming. But they also wanted to have a, a game development studio uh, among their ranks. Uh, at the beginning, it was... Uh, for a hybrid approach. Uh, so we got to deal with B2C gaming, just games we obviously uh, develop for uh, people to, to play them and you know purchase them from Steam, PlayStation Store, uh, Xbox Store and stuff. Uh, but we also got to work on some business-to-business -business projects. Uh, but then after a while, uh, we realized that these two streams are quite different and you need to navigate them with you know, different tools, different people, different kind of expertise. So uh, as Reply Game Studios, uh, we uh, stood out as a, as a proper, you know, proper game dev studio within the group. And we um, kind of relaunched the, the company. And that happened after we actually developed and released two games, uh, Jordi vs. Longwolf and, and Theseus. But with the um, 
the announcement of Solstice, uh, we also made it official that we were actually uh, now being rebooted as a completely separate uh, game dev studio. We're based in Milan, and uh, there's roughly 50 people uh, in, um, in the studio working with us, even though for Solstice, we also had some external help from a bunch of uh, other Italian companies uh, for audio, music, and cinematics. Uh, so in, eventually it was 50 plus uh, 20. Wow. Okay. Very cool. When, when anyone Googles Reply Studios, they see that it's a, a, a double A game developer. Do you guys think of yourselves that way? That's uh, our purpose. I mean, uh, it's, uh, it's a bit of a Shangri-La for many uh, developers uh, trying to, you know, make uh, their name in the international industry. Uh, what we uh, realized is that if you go uh, for projects that are, that are a bit too small, the competition is actually immense because you're mm-hmm. dealing with uh, so many other teams, uh, you know, students, uh, uh, amateurs, people that are really good, but they want to stay mm, small and because they like it that way. But for a company like ours, uh, we really needed to you know, establish a foothold in this other scenario. Uh, because we, we, we knew that we could uh, we, that, and that we also had to uh, to make sure that we could uh, put to good use you know our skills and also the opportunities that we could have as a company. Does, does having that, uh, the, the challenge of being indie, AA or AAA, does it help set expectations for yourselves internally to keep from stressing out with being too big a project, too small a project, that kind of thing? Well, I think we can both answer this question. From my perspective, it's uh, like striking the right balance because uh, obviously uh, you're not playing in the biggest leagues, but Mm -hmm. your products tend to be compared with those really big, big games. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's uh, you have to be responsible for that. You have to to take that into account. And also maybe many gamers from the outside world cannot really understand what's going on behind the scenes, but you're the double A studio, but that means that you have to put in there the care for detail, the, the attention, the, uh, the processes in development that are, can really be compared with AAA development, mm-hmm. even though you're aware that your output is going to be different, at least in terms of scale, but mm. maybe Marco can also, uh, yeah, I, I, actually, I, I fully agree with what Sam said. I, I would have said the uh, mostly the same, uh, the same thing. Interesting. Very cool. I always wonder about that because there's so many pressures, there's so many games being made worldwide, and yet, uh, d- despite you know different levels of, of funding between games, different amounts of time allotted for development and resources, etc., uh, games are so often compared to one another. And I found myself in preparing questions I, and playing through Solstice, everything that I was doing was like, all right, I'm comparing this to a different project, a different product to help me define my experience. And that I think that's both a good and bad thing. I don't know if you guys feel similar. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I agree with that. And uh, as Sam was saying, uh, it's hard to, um, how can I say that, uh, working, uh, knowing you have limits, uh, but sometimes being compared to uh, stuff that probably uh, hasn't <laughs> hasn't limits uh, or mm-hmm. are or are or have great greater uh, scale than than ours. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's both good, uh, good and bad. Well, let's talk about Solstice itself because I've been playing it for the past few days, really having a blast with this action title. But I don't want to—I don't want to be the one to describe it. I think it'd be really cool, Marco, if you could share as the lead game designer in your words what kind of game is Solstice and, and what were you going for? Uh, yeah, well, uh, Solstice is a, a third-person hack and slash game. Uh, with a dark fantasy setting. And this is something like uh, a love letter to the whole genre. And we have this twist of having two characters uh, that need to work together in order to prevail against uh, enemies. And there are two two sisters, uh, Briar and Lute. And I believe that the alchemy of the two uh, in the game is something that we got uh, really good. Uh, because while playing and performing combos, because of course it's, it's uh, an Axe Slash game, so you you can perf- perform combos with Briar, and you see uh, her sister Lute attacking and parrying, uh, because uh, we have this uh, um, AI-controlled uh, sister that can uh, counter attacks uh, by playing uh, pressing a, a button, and that whole. Uh, flow and those mechanics uh, together, uh, I believe, are r- really satisfying to play with, uh, to play with, and never get boring. And you, I believe, you get that feeling of the two of them working seamlessly uh, together because they have this great bond because they are they are sisters and they are bound together by uh, that that uh, that ritual. And yeah, we were really really proud of how the game uh, game turned out and if i can add to that uh, uh, to distinguish the two briar has uh, a lot of weapons and uh, as i was saying you can perform combos uh, slay slay enemies and um, we have to- seven different weapons in the game and you can switch them on the fly so you can uh, perform combos with free uh, four uh, different weapons, uh, switching them in one uh, a single a single string. And um, as I was saying, her sister Lute uh, is controlled by AI, uh, mostly for her offensive skills. Uh, but we wanted the player to have some kind of control on her still, uh, even if you are, uh, since you are, it is an Akan Slash, you need to be focused on pressing uh, madly on the attack buttons and performing combos. Uh, so we have these uh, timed mechanics with the uh, counter-attacks. Uh, loot can counter uh, most uh, attacks uh, uh, performed uh, by, by enemies. And we um, also have another core mechanic, which is the field mechanics, um, which is basically you have uh, uh, colored uh, enemies, uh, blue for ethereal enemies that are uh, invisible and intangible, and you t- need to materialize them using a blue field. And we also have uh, invincible enemies, which are uh, the possessed red enemies, and you need to use another field to um, uh, make them vulnerable. Uh, so all of this together, we believe, creates a nice flow of attacking and thinking and switching stuff. It's really fun for me to to hear you describe it, having played it, and then for anybody that's checking out gameplay or watching it, it's really neat because Briar is the main character with this grand great sword that is, uh, the you know, the Ashen Vindicator. It makes her stand out, and Loot being this 
uh, kind of ghostly, the ghostly sister that follows along. Uh, it's, it's neat because they do bring, bring so much to the gameplay elements as you level them up, the different combos you were talking about. Uh, you can do a lot of really creative things uh, against your enemies, like the different combo levels, the different types of, of uh, blocking and timing for, for things. And uh, I've had a blast. And, I, and mind you, Marco, I have no skill whatsoever at these types <laughs> of games. I just hit the buttons as fast as I can sometimes and hope that it looks cool. Uh, and your game has let me do just that. Uh, but it's been really neat to watch the two characters interact. You mentioned it be this game being a love letter to the genre. Uh, third person hack and slash. Which games specifically proved to be inspiration for Solstice? Uh, well, we did uh, a lot of research before starting because we, we knew we wanted to make uh, an hack and slash game. Uh, but as a studio, as Sam was uh, saying before, we didn't have a, a lot of experience uh, uh, in that. We, we made the Theseus before, uh, which was a third-person game that was really, really simple in, uh, from a mechanic point of view. Uh, so we did a lot of the research, and I believe we... Uh, I. I won't say we saw almost every Akin Slash game uh, existing, but <laughs> something uh, near that. Um, but if I have to name a few, uh, one of my favorite is uh, uh, DMC by Ninja Theory, mm-hmm. um, together with uh, Bayonetta and Devil May Cry, of course. Uh, Devil May Cry 5 wasn't out uh, yet when we started uh, working, so we uh, we had the chance to play it uh, while we while we were developing uh, the game, and um, also uh, other titans that were great influence uh, uh, were God of War 3 and Castlevania Lords of Shadow uh, because they they are not. Uh, um, stylish action games but have that uh, deep uh, deep soul of uh, uh, action uh, action adventure game uh, hack, and, hack and slash games uh, so we uh, re- really like that uh, formula and try to um, I mean say 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 our own uh, give our own voice to that how long have you been working on it we started in early 2018 and uh, we actually uh, released a game on September 20, uh, 20, uh, 2022. So it's almost five years and it's been a really long journey. But uh, not only, you know, from a game development point of view, but also from the perspective of the team itself. Uh, when we released the Theseus in July 2017, uh, there was 13 people at the studio. So as we started working on the vision uh, for Solstice, we also understood that we uh, needed a team to turn that vision into reality. So it was a matter, uh, especially in pre-production, first year, it was a matter of obviously defining the concept, but also uh, undergo a heavy phase of recruitment uh, and setting up uh, a pipeline that could uh, be uh, adequate for such a bigger team than what we had been used to manage in the past. Uh, so, so many people, uh, so many new things to take care of. But uh, by the end of the year, by the end of 2018, we already got a prototype that actually included all the main uh, the core mechanics that we wanted to implement. And it's nice to say and see uh, that 
it, it was it was there and we we didn't have to sway too much uh, or, or to change too many things because obviously when you manage to set up uh, the team and the project uh, in a solid way then you still have a lot of work ahead of you but uh, you have already solved possibly many uh, many many issues or uh, made sure that you can avoid it or mitigate them or work around them so uh, it's uh, it's been a long it's been a long journey but it, it paid off it certainly seems so four years is a long time particularly given that uh, you had to develop through through covid and work from home pandemic elements of it that had to certainly change the way you guys interacted with your project um, but I'm curious how much between you, Sam, as working with the writing team and Marco, you as the lead game designer and creating a, an action hack and slash game, but also having dark fantasy elements. How did you guys work kind of or interact with each other in designing levels, moments of story, getting the player to moments of story? Um, what was your interaction with each other like in creating this? Well, there's a person that is not with us here today. But that made this possible. It's uh, our creative director, uh, Fabio Pagetti. He actually worked as a, as a proper director, as in movies, uh, <laughs> and uh, because uh, he um, created this huge document, we still have it. Uh, it's a sort of draft uh, that uh, was useful for all the departments. So it was useful to to me. Uh, I was in charge of the dialogues, and I worked with some external editors, but actually. Uh, I wrote uh, almost everything that you can see and obviously read in the game. But uh, I started from Fabio's draft. So he said, okay, we're going to start. It was a, like a description uh, of uh, what would happen in each level. So he could say, uh, at the beginning, we have an exploration phase uh, and we can possibly talk about uh, uh, the environment. And then we have a certain fight where we introduce... Uh, uh, a feature, so maybe the dialogues could focus on that feature, uh, and that the very same draft uh, ended up in the hands of Marco and his team, but also uh, on the uh, to the art department, so that they knew how more or less how to create the set that we would use to decorate the environments, and that was really uh, uh, a holy book <laughs> for us to follow. Uh, and, and then, obviously, each stream uh, would have to be integrated with uh, the others. And there were many reviews. Uh, and, and Fabio, obviously, uh, keeping a close eye uh, on consistency, coherence uh, uh, between the different aspects uh, of the game. But obviously, Marco can give you a deeper insight on how the experience uh, was developed and refined based on, on this Yeah. Well, uh, while Fabio was uh, developing this uh, holy holy document, uh, we uh, defined with him uh, some core moments, uh, both from a narrative point of view uh, and uh, a gameplay point of view, of course, because we we, we needed those, and we uh, created something like uh, a map on a wall of the whole flow of the game. Uh, while we were uh, blocking out uh, levels. So we uh, kind of defined the, the whole scope of the game together with the uh, uh, 
number of enemies, number of levels, number of boss fights, and that needed to go along with the uh, whole narrative part. So uh, while we were creating uh, this uh, uh, core, we developed every single level, and after we developed every single level, Fabio and Sam um, managed to uh, edit uh, and uh, expand the dialogues because we know we knew uh, we had uh, uh, I don't know a, a longer session uh, of the two sisters uh, running on uh, on the bridge, so we knew they could uh, they could talk uh, about something for a while. Uh, so yeah, it was like. Uh, uh, back and forth for for a while between the uh, design department and, uh, and Fabio and uh, and Sam. And, How much? Oh, go ahead, Sam, please. Oh no, I was I was just uh, thinking about further examples that can uh, describe the situation. For example, uh, Marco and his team would design a boss uh, with different phases, uh, and so for each phase, we uh, would uh, uh, develop different dialogues. Uh, or different random sentences that could be played along. Uh, so, for example, at the beginning, maybe the boss is cocky because I feel invincible. But then you started beating them up, and so maybe by the end they they go crazy, or or they go or they get angry at you. Uh, and for each phase, they, maybe they have different abilities, obviously that come from the design team, and and we have the opportunity or the need to describe them because since. Uh, two sisters are always uh, on screen together. We tried to make sure that they could uh, uh, talk about uh, even the gameplay situations and possibly provide the player with useful information like uh, we're easy targets uh, if we stay too far from uh, from the boss, uh, maybe we should get closer or maybe there can be other sort of feedback about some uh, uh, debuffs or other abilities uh, that the boss is using. But that also happens uh, throughout the level. So obviously there were some parts that were added or changed, uh, so we could also uh, tweak uh, the dialogue based on that. And I, I don't know when when did we actually lock down that part? Maybe uh, last year, by the end of last year, when we started recording voiceover, probably because at that point you actually have to know uh, what the characters are supposed to say. I'm curious then, Sam, if you were writing dialogue, working with the team, you, you're obviously fluent in English, but you're working with an Italian team. And, and did you initially write it in Italian and then translate, or did, was it a different language? How did you guys go about, or rather I should say, uh, what language were you writing it in? Does that make translation difficult? Uh, we um, wrote the dialogues in English. But oh, did you? Okay. Also, yeah, because uh, at the beginning... We had like a, a, another process in mind. We said we need a mother tongue writer because obviously mm -hmm. it's uh, we, we're going to have uh, many lines of dialogue and stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. So we started working with a with a writer mm -hmm. from uh, from the outside, uh, but uh, uh, we realized that uh, she because she was a she is hopefully she's in good health uh, a woman uh, <laughs> from uh, from Scotland. She's called uh, uh, Emma Beattie. And uh, she was very good, but obviously she couldn't uh, see what we could see day by day about mm -hmm. single uh, ideas or things we could uh, show off uh, with graphics or direction. Uh, so at the beginning, we, we thought about providing her with a draft. 
uh, and then that she could develop, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. But we, there was a sort of uh, detachment uh, that was not based on, you know, on skills or insight. It was just that if she had been there with us, it could have been different. Uh, but we realized that we needed to be more uh, you know, precise uh, with what we would provide her with. So eventually we, we decided to uh, change our collaboration a bit and tune it, it to, you know, to what? actually editing so that mm-hmm. we made sure that the text would read well and would be correct uh, and pleasant for a mother tongue speaker. Uh, and, and we we actually ended uh, the whole process in, in, the, in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, then uh, when we started working with a publisher, uh, we also cooperated with another editor. Um, she's called uh, Rachel, Rachel Heleba. Uh, she also uh, helped us uh, a bit with the uh, culturalization and, you know, uh, we wanted it to be more uh, adequate to American uh, English speakers. So we did some further tweaks and we did a lot of reviews uh, for, uh, you know, the last part uh, of the writing phase uh, because we also needed to uh, go for localization. And we have localized the game into 12 different languages. So we needed to make sure that it was everything was uh, uh, safe and, and frozen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, uh, we, we 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 decided to write a dialogue in English because uh, it would have been uh, fruit, uh, not that fruitful to write everything and then translate it and then possibly <laughs> translate it back. Uh, gotcha. So that's that's how we, we did it. See, that's really interesting. Does that process? Does the uh, kind of the the end localization for other languages, does that happen at the end of the project because you do have to have gameplay locked in and moments and set pieces locked in? Uh, mostly, but there was obviously some uh, changes uh, that we made uh, in the last stretch, so possibly some uh, uh, back and forth on that side as well. And then there was obviously tutorials uh, and other more uh, technical texts uh, that came in uh, a bit later uh, because they... we. We, you know, tutorials are actually the last part of development because you have to have everything in place. Uh, mm-hmm. So there were many, many queries by uh, the localization team. Uh, obviously, some, you write in a language, in any language, but you can't really know the issues that uh, another uh, uh, another language could pose uh, uh, mm-hmm. with pronouns, with uh, uh, verbs or syntax or things that are so clear in the language you're writing, but maybe not so clear uh, in another. Even from English to Italian, actually, uh, it also happened with with Italian translation. That's really neat. See, I find that stuff very fascinating. Uh, just to, just to learn like how in development that changes and and uh, how it impacts the game development. That's really cool. Uh, Marco, this next question uh, is for you, given that your role in the game, and I'm curious uh, to know how you take the question as much as anything else. In a lot of reviews and in pinging out for questions on uh, Twitter about this interview, a lot of people mention the camera. In fact, uh, Dr. Mo tweeted, uh, why the fixed camera? Was it an intentional harken back to old school DMC or Ninja Gaiden? And I know there's a lot of mixed feedback about having a fixed camera versus kind of an open world spin around because segments of the game allow you to do that. Um, I know how I feel about it after the, like after playing some and I'm really enjoying kind of that callback to DMC. Was that a conscious decision in the beginning? How did you guys go about making that choice and are you happy with it? 
Uh, yeah, uh, we uh, actually we really wanted to give some sort of old school feeling to the experience uh, with a modern modern touch, of course, uh, because pure action games are a rarity nowadays, and it's a shame uh, because we, we we love them, of course. Uh, so we sort of saw, saw that as an opportunity, and the camera choice was partially influenced by that. Uh, because we thought that during exploration you really don't need control because uh, we um, action games are usually linear and we wanted to make something quite quite linear with a few detours, of course, uh, uh, a few secrets, but mostly linear. And that together with uh, uh, wanting to give uh, um, a sense of the scale of the city and creating... Uh, uh, those beautiful shots uh, of the environments and so, like framing uh, some some moments. Uh, so yeah, we wanted to, the player to likely uh, sit back, enjoy the ride while exploring, look at the environment, uh, but have the uh, actually full control of the camera while uh, while in combat because that's uh, that's where you need it. Are you happy with that choice after hearing feedback, good and bad? Uh, yeah, but, well, actually, um, nobody likes bad, bad feedback. Uh, <laughs> but A fair I, point. <laughs> I, I believe that we'll be constructive for uh, uh, making something next. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, yeah, yeah, we are convinced by, by our choice. We're going to... Uh, work on what is not working, especially in uh, in combat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we still still stand by by our choice. It had been some time since I'd played a game with a fixed camera, like a third person like action game, and I found myself very quickly growing to appreciate the environments because with the fixed camera, I could see things that you intentionally wanted me to see. Uh, in a way that I think I sometimes miss when I have camera control. I miss what an environmental artist has created or uh, something that I'm meant to see by the design team. And one of the benefits, I think, to having the fixed camera was I really felt the vibe of this game. There was an element of horror vibe, thanks to the dark fantasy, the the fog and the smoke as you're going around these these dilapidated buildings and broken down castle areas. that was for me a very wonderful side effect of the fixed camera in designing the the environments was that the vibe you were going for yeah yeah of course uh, uh consider that uh all uh of the fixed cameras need to be placed by hand so we uh, have the uh, design a uh, level design uh, team together with the art team the environment artist uh work together to, yeah, as you were telling, uh, kind of find the uh, vibe they want to go by uh, with the dressing, with the, uh, with the framing of the, of the scene through, through the cameras. So, yeah, of course, again, we, uh, we, we, we wanted to use that system to uh, give you a better look at the world we, we were creating uh, because, uh, our our team uh, is great at at making that, so we wanted to, uh, to um, uh, how can I say that uh, give give uh, give the player uh, a, a good look at that. 
Gotcha. I see. The one of the neater things that I like about combat encounters is the very end of a combat encounter, right before the the game gives you your score. Which, by the way, again, I'm terrible at this at, at hack and slash. <laughs> um, but whenever it happens, there's this really cool slowdown effect, and I think I've had some really cool moments seeing Briar and Loot up close uh, as an enemy's you know guts and gore fly around. Uh, I really like that. Was that uh, something that you guys had planned to do or was it a, something that came about during development? Yeah, I, I, I think the whole purpose of most uh, hack and slash games is to make you feel cool, make you look good. Mm-hmm. And uh, slow motion uh, is <laughs> one of the best ways to, to do that. So uh, yeah, we decided a few few moments where you uh, need to see things uh, Slowly, uh, the uh, kill camera at the end of the of the fights uh, uh, is one of, one of those, uh, especially because uh, um, again we have these two uh, cool characters working together, and most of the times uh, they are performing uh, different actions at the same time. So uh, it happens a lot a lot of time that at the end of the fight uh, you can see them. Uh, uh, performing two two different actions uh, uh, at the same time, uh, and those are different from the fight before and the fight uh, uh, before again. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's something we uh, we intended to do, and we, we we'll keep doing. Whenever we zoom in on Loot or Briar, and we hear them interacting with each other. Uh, we're able to see more of them, facial reactions and and their mouths moving and, and impressions that they're making. And so I'm curious how you guys settled on the art style of not just being dark fantasy, but of Loot and Briar themselves. Uh, I think that is one of the um, you know, directions uh, that Fabio helped give uh, to the game. Uh, he's uh, very um, passionate about uh, Japanese not just gaming, but also fiction. And he keeps telling us because uh, it's uh, often is about a matter of uh, the style of showing and telling things rather than the actual content. Uh, so the idea was, yes, to uh, find a way to be that in- impactful. And sometimes it's just about a camera cut or the way of framing a certain animation rather than just having uh, a specific event uh, being shown on, on screen. Uh, so regarding JRPGs, uh, it's not specifically maybe JRPGs, but you know this Japanese imprinting uh, mm-hmm. that we got, and not necessarily from gaming, uh, but uh, also from uh, anime and, and manga. So mm-hmm. Berserk and, and Claymore uh, were clear uh, sources of inspiration for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's curious because uh, those are Japanese manga that looked to the West to create mm-hmm. their own fantasy world. So for us, it was like uh, maybe going full circle uh, with that, being uh, you know from Italy and, and Europe uh, in, in general. And mm-hmm. that's also why sometimes people say, hey, the atmosphere is a bit like uh, Dark Souls. But in truth, it's, it's why... That's why, uh, that's because, sorry, Dark Souls uh, looked t- towards Kentaro uh, Miura's uh, uh, westernized uh, uh, fantasy world. So maybe it comes from there. Uh, but then also with the art style, uh, we didn't want to copy 
uh, a Japanese style. We wanted to find uh, a mix uh, that could be uh, personal to us uh, and also meaningful. So, for example, uh, lighting and, and shaders, so materials uh, that are used in the environment are uh, pretty realistic uh, and uh, a bit different uh, from what you usually see in Japanese games. Uh, mm-hmm. But there are obviously other elements that are clearly uh, definitely Japanese in inspiration in the character design or the weapon design or, again, the direction of cinematics and stuff. Gotcha. Gotcha. It makes good sense. Uh, you know, I'd mentioned that I tweeted out for questions and I knew I, that Lute and Briar were familiar when I was hearing their voice, but at the Gamertron uh, tweeted in asking how you guys managed to get Stephanie Houston involved in the game. And it occurred to me that uh, she's the voice of quiet from Metal Gear Solid. And now she's uh, in Solstice, which was a really cool, fun moment for me as a fan. Um was that an intentional thing? How did that come about? By accident, uh, by luck, probably. Uh, nice. I and Fabio were in Cologne for Gamescom in 2019, and we actually bumped into her and her dad, uh, who is uh, helping her as, a, as an agent. Uh, mm-hmm. So Fabio actually recognized her and said, oh, let's take a picture. Uh, and after taking a picture, we chat a bit. And we uh, told her that we were working on this new game. We had uh, uh, like a demo uh, at the time, but it was uh, with the blockout graphics. Uh, it was far from the final result, but we shared the demo, we shared the concept art, uh, and some design documents, uh, uh, because they showed interest and said, oh, maybe we can do something together. And the first idea was to having her voice Briar. But then, you know, you have a, a special guest, a guest talent uh, involved mm-hmm. uh, in the production. You have two characters and say, how can we find uh, another guest talent that is equally as interesting? Mm-hmm. And so we came with the idea, why don't uh, we ask Stephanie to voice both characters? Uh, since uh, Lute is uh, obviously, uh, her voice is uh, heavily affected by post-production. Mm-hmm. So we thought maybe we can make it work. Uh, and, and, it, and, and it did. So we make a, we made a test, uh, and we saw that uh, it could uh, it could actually work. And then uh, she uh, recorded her voiceover from uh, in Germany, uh, mm-hmm. near Frankfurt. Uh, we didn't manage to go there in person, but uh, uh, I was like uh, hearing uh, the whole process uh, uh, throughout each session, so that if uh, Stephanie or the director uh, or voiceover had questions about, you know, context or meaning, uh, I could give them uh, feedback. Uh, and we managed uh, to uh, to do a good job. But at least uh, we were a bit afraid because it was the first time we voiced a game uh, with uh, such a long and, and deep script. Mm-hmm. And by the way, uh, 90th Steps, which is uh, the audio company we cooperated with on, on voiceover for the other characters, they managed uh, uh, actors from the U.S. instead. So uh, it was a, really a big leap for us, uh, also in management terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, but eventually it paid off. It feels uh, and sounds consistent. Uh, and we're receiving some nice praises for uh, the uh, voiceover. Uh, obviously, it's a matter of recording, but also integration. So there was the other audio company we worked with. Uh, it is called DP Studios. We had... Uh, guys from that team working shoulder to shoulder with us for audio integration uh, 
because it, it really needed to be to feel uh, really uh, solid and, and consistent and uh, uh, coherent with the the game uh, the game experience uh, and obviously also the whole cinematics part because we have uh, more than one hour and 20 minutes of uh, real-time cinematics so that I also have the opportunity to name the third company we work with it's called MAGA uh, MAGA Animation Studio it's a uh, an animation studio from Monza near Milan. Uh, they came from uh, TV and cinema, and obviously they were also very involved uh, with uh, everything that pertained voiceover because they actually uh, used that for the parts of the game that feel most like an anime. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. So there were many, many people involved in the whole process, but uh, we are happy with the result. Well, to those many people involved, uh, I got to tell you, I'm really enjoying this as just an action game to to get lost in. It feels nostalgic and it's really fun. And uh, I know that uh, one, several of the people that wrote in, I got DMs about people that were just having a good time with the game as well. And one of them uh, came in publicly from Butch4969. Uh, that's quite a number, Butch. Good job for you. Um, but <laughs> Butch said, uh, he, he said, awesome game. Any plans for additional costumes, weapons? Uh, is DLC something of interest? Uh, is there something that for the next project that you guys would look for? Um, I think he's just wanting more Solstice. Yeah, it obviously depends on the, uh, the broader feedback uh, and, and how the game performs. Uh, but uh, we have created this new IP. It's an original IP that we created from scratch. Uh, and we would be eager to you know, expand it and explore it even, uh, even more. Uh, right now, as Marcus said, we are actually focusing on this very game, on the content that we put out to refine mm-hmm. it uh, and, and make it as smooth uh, as possible in those aspects that maybe can be uh, tweaked a bit. And do, then do you mean by way of patches? Is that what yeah, you mean? Yeah, patches and okay. updates. Uh, but we, it, it's still early to speak about those in detail. But obviously, uh, we will share more information uh, with the with our community as soon as possible. Uh, but uh, and then we, the, the time will come to to think about what really comes next. Gotcha. Well, I'm curious, and Marco, this one I suppose is more for, for you in this front. When it comes to patches or updates, as the game designer, do you are, are you soliciting feedback from people? Are you watching Reddit? Are you watching social media? How do you go about like finding out what there is that needs to be fixed? Or is it something you kind of already knew and, and you kind of have a list to work on once the game comes out? Uh, I think it's kind of both. Um, well, I, I look every, at everything. I look at every single comment on YouTube, Reddit, Twitter. I stalk uh, everything and everyone <laughs> uh, because, uh, yeah, well, I, I like positive feedback, so I can kind of enjoy seeing those. Uh, but uh, as a designer, I, I live on also ne- negative feedbacks. Uh, so yeah, we, we tend to, uh, look at everything and kind of count and list and give a sense of, uh, uh, urgency to, uh, some of the features that we believe, uh, uh, need uh, most of the work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there are some things that we knew, uh, when the game actually released because we uh, performed uh, uh, a lot of, of play tests prior to the 
uh, release of the game. So we knew there were some divisive, divisive things, um, but there are also a lot of stuff that we uh, didn't consider and didn't know, and we kind of acknowledged because uh, a lot more than <laughs> the playtesters uh, we had play played the games in uh, different formats uh, with uh, different play styles. Uh, so yeah, again, we 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 had a roadmap after the uh, that we already planned to uh, work on uh, before we released the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a, a few things changed based uh, based on feedbacks. Is it tough to balance your game between people like me who are button mashers and just trying to look cool and having a just a good old time breaking everything and leveling up versus those that are nailing the combos, getting top tier diamond platinum ranks uh, every time? Is it tough to balance the game between kind of those two sets of people? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, uh, kind kind of difficult. Uh, also because we uh, kind of started the project with uh, uh, accessibility in mind. So uh, we knew we wanted the game to be uh, the more accessible possible, but uh, knowing also that we, uh, since we wanted to make an active slash game with combo score, etc., uh, we knew that we kind of appealed to more hardcore games. Uh, so yeah, balancing uh, one difficulty is uh, totally easier. It's still hard, but it's totally easier than uh, balancing five uh, different with uh, again accessibility in mind, uh, having uh, features like uh, auto combat, uh, auto counter, uh, and so and so on. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, guys, I think that's a, a great place to, to kind of end out on the interview. I wonder if, as a final closing moments, you might uh, point players to perhaps your favorite aspects of the game or things that you really enjoyed about the project uh, that, that you would like them to see. Uh, I'll start, Sam. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, but I, as I was saying before, um, um, one of the things I like most of the game uh, is seeing the two uh, sister in action and making different stuff, uh, but at the same time and working uh, working in synergy side by side, and that was one one of the, uh, if not the most important objective we wanted to achieve uh, from uh, both a gameplay uh, but also a visual point of view. Uh, so yeah, I believe uh, that something we that, that is something we nailed, and I'm something I uh, I'm proud of. And also, I believe we have really nice boss battles, especially in the uh, late part of the game. Super so, cool designs. Super it, cool. I cut you off, but I super cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have some crazy stuff again, especially going towards the uh, the the end of the game. And those are uh, really, really fun, both to play and to to look at. So, yeah, I was just saying uh, at the beginning, I hope that uh, most of the players uh, sit back, enjoy the ride, uh, uh, play the, the way they they prefer, 
uh, being being made hard uh, on the harder difficulty uh, with uh, one one hand tied uh, on the back uh, with a, a dancing controller and stuff like that. Uh, but also, if you need uh, uh, assist uh, and easier difficulties, uh, uh, hopefully they they'll enjoy the game too. Very cool, Sam. How about you? I do like the fact that game seems to resonate with players that uh, enjoyed the sort of games uh, when they were more popular a few years ago. So it's really uh, it's really nice to see that they get those vibes that you also described before. Uh, but it's a game that can appeal to a really diverse audience. So there's also people that get engaged by you know, the character design or the world uh, building or, or the story. So uh, it, it's like to see that you have created something that can be appreciated from these different perspectives. Uh, and it's also nice to know that there were uh, many people working on the game, but eventually uh, it, it's, uh, it's not a really big team compared to blockbusters that we uh, are uh, competing against. So uh, it's really um, a way of developing uh, this uh, scale and, and a, a project that where everyone can really leave uh, their mark. So every uh, single person that worked on the game uh, can say, I managed uh, to do this specific thing that maybe made the game a bit better or that it can help it stand out. And that is true for every person that worked with us, every department. Uh, and uh, obviously, for the players, uh, the final product, the, what ends up in their own hands is uh, it's what matters in the end. But I, I still think that when there's so much passion behind it, uh, you, you can feel it when playing, rather than uh, some other uh, sort of work that you've done because you have to. Uh, I, Work is a work of, uh, of passion and of love, and that's true for all game developers around the world, obviously. And it's, it's the feeling that your passion ends up being the enjoyment of someone else. Uh, I think that's a, a great sensation, a great feeling. Wonderful, wonderful way to end the show there. Uh, Solstice available right now on multiple, multiple platforms. Uh, I encourage any listener to go check it out if you're a fan of uh, the action hack and slash platform. Uh, Sam, Marco, thank you guys for joining me today. Thank you for inviting us. Thanks a lot for having us. And uh, I hope that you keep on enjoying the game and that your uh, audience also has a chance to try it out. 